Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians. And this week, uh, we find ourselves in Colossians 3, looking at verses 1 through 14. Uh, I do want to mention uh, that as you're finding your place there, we have dedicated uh, back to my left, your right. It's known as our prayer room uh, here on campus. And then this week, we have solely dedicated that to any of you Oklahoma Sooner fans that happen to find yourself in church today. Uh, with weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. I saw several of you crying on television yesterday. It's a rough day for you. We're sorry about that. And so we'll offer our counseling services to you and uh, tend to your heart uh, in the midst of it. If you found your place uh, in Colossians 3, this past week uh, I came across an article from a journal of psychology. And in the article, they were posing the question, um, why is it in certain spaces within our life, in certain moments in our life, we tend to find ourselves thinking more clearly about certain issues. And in particular, they were asking this question in regards to why is it that so many people out there, when they're in particular in the shower, if you will, that this is where they have their most creative thoughts. And so a group of academics set out to figure out why this was the case. And so they uh, sent all of these uh, men and women through this study. And what they discovered was, was this. That in order to get to places where we think clearly about things, that it's sometimes necessary to be doing some mundane things in the process. And what I mean by that is not a high level uh, engagement of critical thinking, not a, a lower level of engagement because you get bored and, and you tend to, to drift off. But somewhere in the middle, there's a balance and it tends to lean us in a direction where we begin to have our most creative thoughts and even our deepest thoughts. Now, it's one thing to, to think deeply about things when we're doing those sort of middle-of-the-road tasks, but the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, he, he talks about how they think and what they think about, that it matters. And so if you remember from the previous weeks, we, we, we said if we back up all the way to Colossians 2 verses 9 through 10, I want to remind you about this verse and this passage because all that takes place in chapter 3, it really feeds back into what we read several weeks ago where he says this, in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. So God has revealed himself in Jesus and he is the perfect embodiment of, of who God is. And then now that God, that same God, he, he has filled you with his, with his spirit. And the reason why he does that is this litany, uh, this list, if you will, of things that he addresses that are happening in the context of the church. And so let's pick up in verse one of chapter three, where he says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. And what Paul is doing just in these first two verses, he's telling the believer how you are to be filled with the fullness of all of the Godhead, to be filled with the fullness of his spirit. And the way that you go about doing that is you seek the things that are above. So the question then, well, well what are the things that are above? Do I, do I think about the day that, that I'm going to go to heaven? And the answer to that is well, yes and no. 
I don't think Paul explicitly had in mind here the material things and the, and the things that we will inherit on the other side of the cross, but, but rather things that include the character and the nature and the very essence of who God is. So to think about the things that are above, it's not referring to a place in heaven. It's not referring to the streets that are paved with gold and and the jewels and and all the beauty and all the elegance, but rather what Paul is doing, he is saying, in the midst of this, if you want to be filled with his spirit, you must think about the things above where Jesus sits and where he reigns, his character. Thinking about his eternality, that he never changes. He always was and he always will be thinking about his goodness and his kindness to to you and to your life and and to your family, thinking about his, his graciousness, his unmerited favor over you, that he is a God of grace, thinking about his holiness. To think about the things above means that I come to the place where I recognize that he is wholly separate from me in every which way. He is holy and I am not. It's thinking about things like his eminence, that he's near us, that he walks closely with us, yet at the same time he's transcendent and holy and he is set apart from us. And so we hold those things in tension. It's about thinking about the kindness of the Lord. Thinking about the fact that, that he understands us and he knows our, our wants and desires. He, he knows our feelings and our, our struggles. He, he sympathizes with us. Thinking about his, his goodness, him always knowing and, and always doing right. You see, seeking the things above isn't about the location, but about the person who makes the location what it is. The reason why heaven is so great is because Jesus is there. The reason why heaven is is so wonderful, it's not because you're going to get to see uh, your animals someday or lost loved ones someday. It's because you get to be in the presence of the Lord. He is our treasure. And he says to seek after those things. In the Greek, he uses the phrase seek as a present imperative, which just simply means that we are to continuously We are to constantly be seeking and thinking about the character and the nature of God and Christ. And so then if we are filled with all that fullness, verse 3 goes on and he begins to remind them because some of them were were drifting away from that fullness. And he says in verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What Paul was doing in this moment is he was telling the Christian, I want you to look at your past, but then I want you to look ahead at your future. I want you to recognize where you came from, but I also want you to see where you're going. And that the the beauty of the gospel is that, that we don't have to ignore our past and pretend the things that we did before Christ didn't happen, but at the same time, we don't live in judgment and we don't sit in condemnation and shame, but rather we look to the hope of glory and the hope of the gospel and the goodness and the freedom that comes in pursuing Christ. And so you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, he goes on and he he begins to elaborate on what this old life actually was. And he says, therefore, put to death in verse 5 what is earthly in you. Put it to death. When he uses that phrase, put to death, it it is meant to be in every which way a very harsh and a very powerful and a very violent metaphor. 
When you put something to death, it always involves the the tearing of flesh. It it always involves the, the, the sacrifice of blood. And what he's saying is, all of these things that I'm going to list out, you put these to death. You kill them before they kill you. And so here's his list, really divided up into two things. You can think about these things in this way. Number one is what we'll just call sensuality. And the second one is covetousness. And so he says, you put what is earthly in you, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire, the covetousness, which is idolatry. The sexual immorality. He uses the word in the Greek, pornea. It's where we get that in the, in the English language. It comes from the Bible. When we use the word pornography or, or pornographic, this is what we, we understand this to be. It means any kind of immoral and, and sexual relationship that you would engage in. You know, chastity and and saving yourself in Paul's time was just as radical of an idea as it is today. But I do not think we are more sexually immoral today than we were 2,000 years ago. We just see it on a larger scale because of social media and TV. People have always been, I promise, you read Roman history, people have always been sensual and immoral. And so Paul writes to the same audience. He says, put to death those immoral relations. He says, put to death uh, the impurity, the the moral uncleanliness that would would exist within your life. Put to death the passion in verse 5, the emotion that's attached that leads to the excesses of sensual things. He says, put them to death. Put to to death uh, the evil desires that are within you. Put them to death and, and, and give them to Christ and, and, and make sure that they are dead and they don't come back, that you do whatever is necessary in your life to, to put those things to bed and to put them away. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 6, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? In other words, what the writer of Proverbs is saying is that these these sins of sensuality that that he's talking about that exist in the context of church, if you're playing around with these things and think you can manage them and be near them, you're going to get burned every time. You're going to lose that battle. But he lists all of these things and then you notice how he transitions and he talks about coveting. All of these sensual things and then he transitions on to, to material things. One author put it this way. He said, it's notable that that the covetousness is at the end of this because it is directly correlated to it. In so many ways, the the heart of of what we would just say materialism, the heart of, of wanting something that someone else has, and that thought of that possession or that person or even that life, it consumes you. To the point to where you're almost controlled by it in those ways that, that it's rooted in the, in the sin of sensuality as well. And one author put it this way. He, he says, uh, materialism and, and coveting things is the natural trans, uh, uh, movement away from sensuality. I, I, I'm able to deal with this and, and put it to death. But because they come from the same place, the sin of materialism is just going to rise up. And it's why Paul includes it in his list of things that you are to put to death. And here's the big reason why Paul says all of these things are important. Because in the midst of of culture 
that is sensual, in the midst of culture that, that covets and, and longs for things that they don't have, it inevitably leads to something else. And he says it in verse 9. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with all of its old practices. See, Paul knew and we understood that lying is first and foremost, it's, it's a sin before God before it is a sin against the person that you lied to. It's a sin against the church and, and it's a sin against the person that, that you expressed the lie to or, or misjudged the truth and, and tried to portray it in, in a different way. But first and foremost, that lie or that deception, it's a sin against God. And so he says, all of those things are your old way. They are falsehoods. Put those things to death. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew. There is not circumcised or uncircumcised. There is not barbarian or slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. It's this contrast between here's what it was like when you didn't know Jesus and here's what it should be like now and the barriers that have been removed because of Jesus. He, he lists these things here, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. What these things mean when he speaks about Greek and Jew is he's saying that the racial barriers that have divided the church over the years are no more. That you sit next to a person to your right or left or in front of or behind. And they can be African-American or Latino. They can be Asian. They can be Caucasian. They can be old and they can be young. What the gospel does is it doesn't allow us to have blinders to where we judge someone based upon those things. We celebrate those uniquenesses of where we come from, but it's not the thing that keeps us apart anymore. The 1950s and the, and the Jim Crow laws and, and legislations and all of those things are no longer applicable according to the gospel. That according to the gospel, there are no racial barriers. There are no preferences and, and pride and, and, and lifting up someone else or some ethnic group over to the degree of the other one. In Christ, God has dealt righteously with those things. He uses Old Testament phrases where he says circumcised and uncircumcised. He's talking about the religious barriers that existed. The barriers that existed between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and the Gentiles and, and the self-righteousness that, that often comes with this. Remember, this is written in the context of, of the Gnostics who have come in and said, if you'll buy my bobblehead and, and buy my special oil, then, well, then we'll anoint you with a special gifting and, and you'll understand the mysteries and the mercies of God if you listen to our gospel, which Paul says is not a gospel at all. And then he Gently transitions to verse 12. And I enjoy talking about these things much more than what he lists prior to that. But verse 12, he goes on and he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. As, as somebody who has been called holy before the Lord, as someone who is beloved according to the Lord, put on compassion, uh, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
Usually when I study throughout the course of the week, there's a, there's a time, usually on Wednesdays or Thursdays, where I'll, I'll pull up about 20 different translations and I'll compare notes to all the translations. And I preach from the ESV and it's my preferred translation for a lot of reasons. But this past week, I happened to pull up the King James version of, of this verse and, and hadn't looked at it in a while, but I was so glad that I did because in the King James, they, they translate compassionate hearts. They translate it like this. Only King Jimmy would do this. The bowels, the bowels of mercy. Literally the, the intestines, the, the stomach, the thing that exists within inside you. The bowels of mercy for the compassionate hearts. Because the, the heart was often perceived as, as the thing that was inside, deep within inside our stomachs. It's, it's where we get our, our very being, these, these bowels of mercy. Put on these things, this compassionate, these tender mercies, this tenderness of heart. Put on kindness. You know, I think kindness can happen naturally in relationships with people that we like. Kindness is hard when we're with someone in community and, and we don't maybe agree with everything that they say or do. Or maybe they have a different political views or they, they view the world through, through a different lens than we do. Kindness can, can be hard in, in those circumstances. But Paul says, put on the kindness of the Lord. Clothe yourself, verse 12, in humility. To serve with, with humility, to serve with, with, with lowliness. To be low in heart as, as Jesus was described in Matthew eleven twenty nine, To be meek. Behind meekness is this gentleness that comes with, with a person who, who understands the truth of God. And to be, to be meek does not mean that you become a doormat for other people's problems or issues. It doesn't mean that you get stepped on in the midst of that. It doesn't mean that you get taken advantage of because you are meek. You see, a meek person clothes themselves with the truth of God's word. They are deeply principled people that could even be dangerous, but that, but that danger is, is kept in check by the Spirit of God. And so they know they, they wield great power in knowing what God's Word says, but, but they don't come across as arrogant or condescending. They, they don't see themselves as the hammer and everything else out there as a nail. They don't constantly see themselves trying to fight every argument or fight every battle. They just simply pick and choose and they faithfully walk with the Lord our God to put on that meekness, to put on that gentleness, to put on that patience, the long, the long suffering in the face of, of insult, the long suffering in the face of in, in, injury, the, the long suffering in the, in the face of persecution or being misheard or, or misunderstood, you, you put on because your old self has been put to death and, and now Christ is who lives in you. So you endure with all humility, with all meekness, with all, with all patience. Verse 13 Therefore, then you, you do all these things and you put on the new life in Christ. You bear with one another. You bear with one another. It literally means you, you endure with hardship with your church. You endure the hardship in the context of your community. And the only way this is even remotely possible is if we are a people 
that is not living the way our old self used to live, but rather we have put on the righteous clothes of Christ. All of these things that he has just listed, this meekness and patience, this gentleness, all of these things, you bear with one another to the end. And you contend for it and, and you fight for it because he goes on and says, if one has a complaint against another, then you will be able to forgive each other. You'll be able to forgive each other just as the Lord forgave you. Now I know anytime I talk about forgiveness from, from this pulpit, anytime I've talked about it over the past three years, I, I know it's oftentimes received with a mixed bag. And the reason why it's received with a mixed bag is because some of you have, have had some horrible things done to you. You've had some experiences in your life that are at deeper uh, uh, levels than, than any of us here. And so there is a complexity oftentimes in the midst of that, especially to the vulnerable and to those that have been abused. And so I say that, recognizing all this, but yet here in the midst of what Paul's admonition is, he says, we forgive because God has, has forgiven us. Now I want to come back to that here in just a moment, but, but as we see all of these attributes that he lists out in this kindness and humility, meekness, all of these things, I think it points to this fundamental truth for God's people today. And the truth is this. The theology that you live out is more important than the theology you claim to believe. The way you live your life, these are, these are behavioral qualifications that he's giving. The theology that, that you live out and you display uh, on your campuses at, at TCU or Southwestern or, or TCC or Baylor, wherever it is that you attend, the, the qualities that you display with your coworkers. The qualities that you display in your home with your spouses and with your kids. The theology that you live out is more important than the theology that you claim to believe. But I will say this. The theology that you believe, it still deeply matters. And what you think about God, it changes how you live. When you rightly understand him and know him, it compels you to live a life on authentic mission, being real with who you are and real with the people that you interact. Your theology is much more important in how you live than what you claim to believe. Because it doesn't match. If it doesn't match what you say, then the truth is no one cares. No lost person that's far from God is going to be compelled to come to know Christ because how you live, it deeply matters. But if you're not consistent with that, then they, I promise you, they don't care. And your very best efforts won't matter because your life doesn't match up to it. But I want to clue in or end on this and sort of focusing on this idea that he says, if anyone has a complaint, you forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. I know with absolute certainty, because I've talked with some of you that are here today and in our previous service this morning, I know there are some of you that are out here today that are struggling with trying to forgive. And I don't know exactly the details on everybody, but I know even, even this guy from the pulpit sometimes, I, I struggle with, with trying to forgive and, and understanding that it's, a, it's an event, but it's also a process that, that you're sort of working through and you're navigating through. But, but I want to warn us about a couple of things and remind us about a couple of things when it comes to forgiveness as we think about it biblically. When we hold on to an offense, 
It traps us in a cell of bitterness and it ultimately damages our relationships. It traps us in a cell. One one author described it more vividly than that. He says, it is like when you fail to forgive and do not want to forgive and choose to walk in bitterness and unforgiveness. It is as if you have checked yourself into the prison. You have walked past all the metal gates. You found the jail cell with your name on it. You locked yourself in, you took the key, and you flushed it down the sink to never be retrieved of again. And oh yeah, by the way, no guard's going to come tend to you, and no one's going to come to help. And you're going to sit in that jail cell of bitterness and despair because of your unwillingness to forgive. And it traps you. And it holds you there. You you become a hostage to to your own thoughts and, and your own way of thinking. But... A couple of things I think are are helpful when it comes to forgiveness that I think that we should be reminded of this morning. Number one, forgiveness is not containing hurt. It's not bottling it up. And, And what I mean by that is oftentimes we try to compartmentalize forgiveness. And we say that if I can just forgive, then I can pretend as if that offense never really happened. I'll just, I'll bottle it up and I'll, and I'll push it to the side and I'll pretend it, it never really was there. Forgiveness is not that. But rather what forgiveness is, is, is you're making a commitment about what you're going to do when the hurt flares back up. When the hurt gets brought up some, some way randomly, you, you think you've forgiven and you thought you did. And how many times in, in my life did I think, well, I've forgiven that person in my, in my heart. And then six months later, something else sort of pops up and I realize, man, maybe I didn't really forgive them. Maybe I didn't really do this biblically in a way that that honors Christ. Well, forgiveness is not just trying to contain my hurt, but rather what I will do when the hurt flares up. And so what I do in those moments is I I go before the Lord quickly and and I say, Lord, I need you to to tend to my heart and and to help me believe in this forgiveness that I have actually extended it or I've actually received it. It's not compartmentalizing. It's not containing hurt. Number two, forgiveness is not an excuse. Forgiveness doesn't reclassify a sin committed against you, and it doesn't just make it a mistake. And I've heard a lot of well-meaning people over the years try to minimize sin by just simply calling it a mistake. A mistake is, is something you do unintentionally. A sin is, is a deliberate act that we know that, that is not what God wants for us and, and is not God's best. Mistakes are excused. Sins must be forgiven. Forgiveness isn't a a downgrade, if you will, to a a lesser sort of hindrance to you or or occurrence. It, It doesn't reclassify. But what it does do is this. When we practice forgiveness, here's here's in essence what we're saying without saying this and coming across as, as perhaps condescending and that we weren't genuine. But theologically, here's what it means. When you say, I forgive you, For something you did to me, no matter what level it actually was, what you were saying is this, Christ died for what you did and his death and his sacrifice is acceptable on your behalf. That what you're saying is I forgive you because what Jesus did for you, his, his death was sufficient for what you committed against me. And so it helps us walk through where they we're not saying you're excused necessarily. Because the third thing is this, forgiveness is not forgetting something. 
Now, we, we wrestle with that tension in the word where it says uh, the Lord God removes our sin as far as from the east is from the west. And, and the truth is he can do that. You know why? Because, because he is God. But, but I want to remind you very quickly, God did not forget our sin. And he proves to us that he, that he didn't forget. And, and you know how he proved it? He sends his son into the world and he allows him to be murdered and crucified on a cross and put to death to atone for the sins of you and me. He didn't forget. He made a, a sacrifice and, and a way back for, for his people to be reconciled to him. And he, and he did it through Christ. So that now you and I can, can sit here and come here and, and we don't have to live in shame and, and we don't have to feel condemnation, that we know that we are forgiven and we know the depths to which our Father would seek to reconcile his children to himself. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but rather forgiveness is a commitment to how you will respond when memories come up again, not a declaration that the memories are just erased. And I see this more often than not with those who have been physically abused as children and, and the long-lasting toll that that takes on an individual's life and how they process and how they work through those things. Yes, they may have forgiven the offender, but, but the repercussions in that consequentially down the road are immense. They are deep and they are complicated. Fourthly, forgiveness is not always restoration. Forgiveness is not always restoration. We often think, well, if I just forgive them, then maybe the relationship, do I have to pretend like the relationship's back the way it was? Not always. There is times where we forgive and the relationship is stored and, and it's like it was, or, or perhaps in, in marriage conflict, on, on very basic level of marriage conflict, when we ask for forgiveness and then we are restored rightly to our spouse, we, we practice grace and mercy in our life, the, the marriage actually gets even better. It's even, it's even richer because we walk through and talk, but there are, there are some instances in life where depending on the sin and depending on how the response is, that the relationship is not really reconciled. You're reconciled to Christ, they're reconciled to Christ, but the relationship will never be the same from that moment forward. And if it is, it may take years and it, and it may take months to, to get it back to where it is. It's not always restoration, though we pray and we hope that restoration occurs, to be reconciled to your brother and sister. Lastly, Restoration in the context of that is rooted in forgiveness, but not all forgiveness is going to result in restoration. Just another way of saying that. So here's my challenge to you this morning as I close. I think when we see passages like this where there's just sort of this laundry list, we, we, we go to the trees and we see each tree, but we've got to remember the forest in the midst of this. And what Paul is, is advocating is that you would be full You'd be full of his spirit. You would walk in the fullness of God and that when we pursue Christ, all of these other good things come along. When we pursue Christ, all of these bad things are minimized. And so what I don't want you to do and to leave here today is to think, well, I've got to walk out of here and do sin management in my life. But I've got to have this checklist of, of righteousness. No, we go back as we look at the tree, we, we pull back out and we, we look at the forest and we go, but for Christ. And we run from 
from those things, but more importantly, as we run from those things and as we, as we turn from those things, we run to Christ. It's not just about fleeing the sensual things. It's not just about fleeing the materialism. It's not just about fleeing the things of, of this world, but it is most assuredly mostly about us running, sprinting to Jesus and letting him be our focus and letting him be our aim. And so this morning, I would say, turn from those things, turn from, from that sin, but would you just run to Jesus quicker and harder and faster than you even turn and flee from those things. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that you give us in the book of Colossians. We pray that we would be a people that would be full of your spirit in our life, that you have reconciled us to yourself. And so, Father, I ask that in this room today, I pray that as we leave here, that our our theology, our doctrine, our understanding about who you are, that it would rightly influence and impact how we act when we leave here. And just help us, Father, be, be faithful to that. And so I know that today there are some people here that need to flee from some sin. And so I pray that they would do that. But Father, I pray more than they would just flee that sin, they would turn and run to you quickly. And they would put to death the, the old way and put on the new. So Father, would you help us be faithful, we ask in Christ's name, amen.